Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. And you know, sometimes life does this to you, doesn't it? You just wake up, you're just doing your thing, and then somehow life picks a fight. Or maybe you're like this guy who's got this beautiful pink house here, and you wake up and it's just a normal Monday, and you go off to your life, and while you're there, a demolition crew shows up to demo a house on your block, and because of life, you come home, and what you have left is that. Because they demoed the wrong home. See, you, you're just driving home. You're frustrated because you got in a fight with your boss. But you can't wait to get on that couch, turn on that Netflix, relax a little bit, kind of unwind. And then you get there and your couch is gone. Your walls are gone. Your home is gone. Why? Life picked a fight. See, we don't get to sign up for stuff like this. It seems to enlist us automatically. It's one of those things where you've been volunteered because you're breathing. I mean, you know what that's like. I mean, sometimes it's small things. This week I buried a hamster. Our pet hamster passed away, you know, which was tragic for me. You know, I'm sitting there nursing a hamster. It is a strange feeling as a grown man to be holding a frail rodent and like feeding it water and little pieces of food. Like, I, I have a box for that if somebody's like, hey, you wait till your late 30s, you're going to start to win. And there's going to be this defining moment where you're going to be nursing a rat back to life. And then it's going to die. And I, because I'm a pastor and a parent, I end up planning a memorial service for a hamster. And it was a good memorial service. I was proud of my memorial service for that hamster. We got a white cloth. We, we wrote with Sharpie on the white cloth our words that come to mind when we thought about Nibbles, because that was his name, because he nibbled. The first thing he nibbled was me, because the first time I ever grabbed him, he bit my finger and his teeth met in my skin. And so we henceforth named him Nibbles. Um, it was a miracle he survived that day. But like, you know, we we're fluffy, chewy, chubby, furry, you know, Nibbles. And we wrapped Nibbles up in that cloth and we laid him in that ground and, you know, we just, we celebrated that life. And then, you know, it's like I got asthma this week. I ain't never had asthma before, but somehow my body decided to develop asthma. So I go from never having asthma to walking around with two inhalers and taking them multiple times a day. Why? Because sometimes life picks a fight with you and you didn't get to pick that fight. Today, we kick off a series called Fight For It, because the reality is, is that if you signed up to live, you've signed up to fight. And most of us, most of us forgot, we didn't read the fine print, and the fine print is if you're breathing, you're fighting. And the question is, is when life picks a fight, are you going to pick the fight back? And over this month, we want to talk about the fight. And today will be a little different because I want to I just camp with the word fight because sometimes there's something to be said about the word fight. Fight's got a negative connotation, but fight shouldn't just be negative. And I want to look at one of the most inspirational fighters I have ever come across. 
It's a guy named Paul, a man who had been marked by his hatred for Christianity, his zeal to destroy it. He was brilliant, trilingual, considered to be one of the smartest, brightest um, academics in his day and age. Had Paul not become a Christian, he probably would have been one of the most famous Jewish scholars to have ever lived. I mean, he was that genius. And Paul has this encounter with Jesus that completely upends his life, and it totally transforms him. And here's a man at the height of his game, and he switches teams. And the letter that we're going to read is the last words that he writes in his life. Now, I recognize that many of us, whether online or in this room, we're kind of in a full spectrum of faith. Some of us would be completely bought in and say, man, I'm a Christian. And some of us are here because someone invited you because they've said, you've got to come to this church. Even if you don't believe it, I think there might be something in it for you. And what's fascinating is here's what we can all agree on before I read the letters that I'm about to read is that Paul historically is considered to be a real person that even Individuals who would look at the Bible and and would not subscribe to its religious teachings or its spiritual doctrine would recognize that the Bible is also a historical document. And while they may disagree with some of the history points, the letter I'm about to read, written by the person I'm about to read it from, is not in dispute. People believe and agree Paul wrote this letter. And not only is there historical alignment around that, there's also an agreement about where he wrote it. See, Paul writes this letter in a prison that's called Mamertine. This, this was a prison on the back end of the Roman Forum. Um, the Roman Forum was kind of the center of the world at the time. And 2,000 years ago, when Paul's writing this letter, the center of the world of the Roman Empire was a small stretch of land about the size of this office park here. And in that office, in that kind of like stretch on the back side of the office park would have been a little tiny cold, dank cave that Paul would have been imprisoned inside of. Now, the Roman form is a hard thing to capture today. You'd have to, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., and you've ever seen the grandeur of like the Capitol building, the Washington Monument, if you've ever seen that vibe, take that and Times Square and put them together. That, that was the Roman form in its day. It was the center of the world. It was the center of movement of life. It was the most happening, most vibrant place to be. Street performers, talk, lecturers. Like, I mean, it was Times Square and the National Mall combined. And in the backside in a cold, dark cave is a small prison, a prison I've been inside of, that ceiling ends about right here. And that's only about as big as a portion of the stage. There is no light in that room. In fact, it's kind of cold because there's a, um, and humid because underneath the rock, there's a crack and water bubbles up periodically because there's a natural brook underneath that cave. And it's in that place that Paul writes the beginning of this last section of his letter when he says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure is near. Now, he's writing this to Timothy. That's why it's called 2 Timothy. It's the second letter he writes to Timothy, who is his protege. He's, Paul is a spiritual father. He's a mentor. He's an advisor to Timothy. And Paul has been thrown in jail. He's had his court date. He's stood before the judge, and he's been found guilty. And it's clear it's over. 
They give him his sentence and they give him the deadline. And so multiple times in this letter, he's going to ask Timothy, come quickly, Timothy, come quickly, Timothy, because he knows he doesn't have much time left. And, and he's using an illustration, a visual here that necessarily wouldn't connect with us in kind of our modern age, because the idea of a drink offering is not something that most of us would have top of mind. So to kind of help think about it, think of it like an hourglass with time, with sand dripping through. The idea when he says it this way is that you picture an hourglass with just a few strands left to fall through. He's like, it's almost over, Timothy. It's almost done. It's almost finished. And he uses his, his final words, his final letter, and his final moments of life to challenge, Timoth- to, to challenge Timothy to fight. And the way he does it, like a good parent, is he, he lets his life be an example. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, I love words. And when Paul writes this 2,000 years ago, he's writing it in a different language than the language I'm reading in. The language he's writing in has a little bit of nuance. And so when he writes the word fight, that word is fascinating. It's a word that if we're going to talk about fighting for it this month, that we have to first start by defining what the fight is. Because I think the fight is where you have to start if you're going to do this right. When he says fight, there's an interesting concept embedded in the word he chooses. The idea of the word fight has a finish line attached to it. When people would have heard this, it's pretty clear, especially as he develops this final paragraph, that he's using athletic imagery. Sports is a metaphor that transcends time, transcends generations, cultures. And so here is a man who's using a sports analogy to grab hold of Timothy's heart and mind as he's calling him to fight. He's saying, look, fight for the finish line. He's like, I have fought the good fight. I've made it to the finish line. And it's not just the making it to the finish line. It carried with this connotation of victory. It carried with the connotation of of doing it and conquering it and, and actually with your hands up over high as you cross through or watching zero tick on the time and knowing you've just won. That's the word fight when he says he's fought the good fight, when he's challenging Timothy to step in. And, and I appreciate it because what it does is, I think if we're going to talk about the word fight, embedded in it is the idea that you can't lose sight of what's actually right. That there's a finish line to this fight. There is a, there is a place that you cross in the end. And when you don't lose sight, when you... You're keeping it bound. You have that grand perspective like Paul does. What happens is is it gives you a perspective to navigate the in-between, the mundane. It gives you an ability to reframe what you're currently walking through and to see your life in its entirety. And I think, honestly, this is a week that's good for us. right? I mean, over the course of this week, a, a week ago, this Sunday, no one would have predicted that we would have a top five financial event. In the course of one week, where almost $4 trillion would be lost in one single market here. That there would be such a spread and concern about this invisible thing that none of us can see. 
that started to infect the way that people even have confidence around businesses and the ability to deliver products. I told you I'd, I'd got asthma in response to having bronchitis. My body overreacted. But what's been interesting is I've seen it up close how this like fear has gripped people. I was flying to a funeral recently, and um, I had still trying to learn how to deal with asthma because this is brand new for me, and, and I'm having this asthma attack on an airplane. I don't have an inhaler with me, and it's really painful, and I'm trying to breathe. And I'm noticing that, like, people are, like, trying to claw out the windows. I, I'm like, <laughs> and I'm, I'm watching, I look over, and there's this lady, she's got a McDonald's napkin, and she's like this. And while I'm fighting for breath, I want to look at her and be like, that McDonald's napkin is not going to save your life. Like, that's not a filter, woman, right? Like, I want to lash out because I'm like, I'm, I don't have coronavirus, I'm asthmatic. Can you help me out here? And she's like, you know, and people are like this right here and, you know, not wanting to look at me because somehow if you make eye contact, that's how you contract the virus. And I'm like, I mean, I am feeling personally the fear that's like grabbing hold of us. And I think that sometimes these moments are good moments in life because they remind us of how fragile life really is. Trillions of dollars have been lost in a stock market because of something we cannot see that is nothing more than a reminder of what we will all experience. Why are we afraid of a virus? Because it could kill us? Well, I'm pretty sure last time I checked that that's the guaranteed destination for all of us. Isn't it? It's 100%. No one's beat that. But these moments, they remind us of our fragility because oftentimes we operate with life. We don't look at the finish line. We don't think about where we're headed. All we see is about what's in front of us. And when your life is dictated by the urgent, when your life is captured and pulled in by what you see right in front of you, it can cause you to lose sight and to overreact and to underreact and to, to get misguided. Now, listen, I, I think... Coronavirus is a legitimate issue. And I'm not making a knock on a virus that's spreading. The point I'm trying to make is that sometimes it's helpful to be reminded how truly fragile everything around us actually is. Because what happens when you lose sight is you start to lose fight. And you stop fighting for the things that's actually worth fighting for. This past week, or about, about a week ago, uh, one of the biggest boxing matches of the year, one of the most anticipated boxing match matches of the year, uh, was getting ready to happen. You had Deontay Wilder, who was this undefeated, kind of Muhammad Ali type. I mean, just in a class of his own and his fighting style. And here's this anticipated rematch with Tyson Fury, who's this scrappy guy. And as the match is getting ready to happen, Deontay walks into the arena, headed to the ring, wearing this outfit right here. He, he's kind of completely covered head to toe. I think we have the picture of his costume. He walks in, and that's how he walks down to the rink. He's ready. He's going to step into that battle. But what happens is he gets into that fight, and for those who saw it, he makes it about halfway through before he gets pulled. And Fury ends up winning that fight 
Most people have predicted that Wilder was going to walk away with the victory like he did the first time. And in the aftermath of his defeat, he released a press statement saying that the reason he couldn't make it, the reason his legs were a little iffy, the reason he didn't have the fight that night was because what he was wearing there weighed 45 pounds. You see, I I think Wilder is a walking illustration of what can happen to us in life sometimes when we lose sight. We, we, not only do we lose sight and we lose the fight, sometimes an even greater tragedy happens. We start to fight the wrong battle. See, there's something worse than losing the right battle. It's winning the wrong one. And some of us, if we're not careful, if we get caught up in the urgent, we get caught up in what's present, we get caught up what's in front of us, we will sacrifice our family for our job. We will destroy our relationships because of the instant gratification of an internet click. That in the moment of the heat of a battle, of a struggle, of a conflict, we say things that undermine our relationship instead of developing it. Because we lose sight. And we care more about winning the fight right in front of us that's not the fight we're fighting for. We care more about winning that argument. We care more about winning that promotion. We care more about winning that what other people are going to think. And we end up sacrificing the respect of those who know us the best for those who don't even know us in our worst, we win in the wrong battle, and we fight the wrong fight. And Wilder this week, I think, was a great walking illustration of the danger that can happen when you lose sight. The, the other part of this word fight that's fascinating to me is, is that this word that Paul uses is eventually going to make it into our language one day. See, Paul writes this in the Greek language, which was the language of their day. And eventually it shows up in our language 2,000 years later, but we don't use it for the word fight. No, no, no. We use it for the word agony. The word agony is the word Paul uses here. Because when Paul talks about fight, he's talking about that extreme mental, physical anguish that's about pushing to get you past that finish line. That's about pushing to get you past the goal line. That's about pushing you to get you into that place of victory. That word, agony, is the one Paul uses when he's writing down this thing. Which I think is a really helpful thing to know. Because sometimes we we show up and we sign up for the fight and then it gets hard. We say, I do. And we don't realize that sometimes when you stand across the aisle and they look pretty and you look handsome and everything's good and it's easy to make life commitments. It's easy to commit, I'm going to live with you. But it's hard to say, I'm going to die with you. It's hard to look across and to say, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do even when you punch me in the face. Not literally because that's jacked up. But you know what I mean when life hits you. And they're not sure they they feel the same way about you. Like, there is an agony to parenting. There is a struggle to parenting. There is a reason. It's called labor. But it, it should be a present tense for the rest of its life because it never is not laboring. Because it just keeps getting harder in different ways. Diapers become... Debates in your face and doors being slammed. Job, the 
even if you work for yourself, there's some days you don't like your boss. Right? It's hard. Life is hard. And that when Paul says we fight the fight, there is an agony and it's worth it. And if you sign up for life, you sign up for hard. But like my daughter is learning, even right now doing gymnastics, is that hard is not bad. Hard is just hard. Because we, we step in and we think it should be easy, right? I care about it. This is important. Stuff should be easy. And it's like, no, all the easy things in life are not the good or worthwhile things of life. I would argue that the harder the thing is, the probably the better the thing is, the greater the thing is. No one does news broadcast for people who put on their socks. Right? We do it for people who overcome. There's a reason that Paul uses the word agony because he doesn't want to downplay for Timothy the fact that it's easy. He doesn't want Timothy to see the way he's lived his life and for Timothy to think, oh, that was easy for Paul. And he's like, Timothy, I want you to understand this thing is hard. Look, I remember, I didn't grow up in Christian church and... Um, I used to pick on Christians, quite honestly. I, I thought that what they believed was crazy. My undergrad was in biochem. I, I was just like, you people believe myths. You, like, have drunk the Kool-Aid. And then one day I started to dig in, and actually it was theoretical physics. I, I'm a nerd, and I'm just starting to read quantum mechanics stuff, and was bumping up, and Stephen Hawkins, Brief History of Time, and, and I'm starting to wrestle with, like, man, maybe there's more to life, and bumping up against this God thing, and wrestling through this, and in the process of starting to actually truly struggle with this idea of faith, I started to realize, like, maybe there's more. Maybe, maybe the problem I have with Christianity is not that I think it's an easy myth people believe, but maybe, like, what I've seen other historians recognize, that the challenge with Christianity is that it's hard. That it's hard to live out this faith. Now, you may push back and say, oh, it's not hard. We've got Jesus. Yeah, we have Jesus, but why does the chief champion of Jesus... Use the word agony when he talks about trying to live for him. Like, one of the things that pushed me away from Christianity was how overly simplistic these people were. They were like, oh, you just need to let go and let God. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. You just drop the letter D and you make it sound like it's profound and true. It's not profound and true. Like, show me how to do it. How to fight this fight. Because it's hard. It's hard getting up every day and honoring him and living for him. And even if you're not in that camp, it's hard just getting up and being true to the vows you've made of being present and showing up in the things that you're trying to do. It's hard when your kid is screaming at you not to lose control. And I appreciate Paul and his honesty to say, this is not easy. This is hard. And for those who come to Encounter Church, this is why I put so much emphasis on the how. Because it's easy to get caught up in the emotion of the wow of what we have and then to walk away and our lives are not transformed. We don't know how to live it and do it because we don't have the how. And what I love about Paul is Paul spends a bulk of his letters, almost a half of every letter that Paul writes is spent telling you how to live out this hard thing called Christianity. Yes, Jesus made the way. Yes, Jesus is the reason we can be Christians in the first place. He's like, Timothy, don't discount the struggle. Don't discount the fight. Don't, don't lose sight of how we have to show up every day and try with all our might. Uh, a story that I think is probably one of the most uh, info, inspirational Olympic stories is from the 1968 
Olympics in Mexico City. Um, a Tanzanian runner named uh, John Stephen Akwari shows up, and it's his, his country's first attempt at the Olympic gold. He's a distance runner, and he arrives, and one of the challenges is, if you've ever been to Mexico City or you know anything about its geography, is it's, it's the mile-high mile city and then some. Uh, and so if you've ever been to Denver or any place that's above 5,000, 6,000 feet, you know instantly when you start to breathe, it's a little bit hard to breathe there. And so he arrives, and he's, man, this is a little winded here. And so he starts to run, and he starts to get a cramp into the race. And he's running, and he's cramping up, and other runners are starting to cramp up too. And in fact, there's a massive pileup that ends up taking out 18 of the 75 runners in the race. And he's one of them. And he's laying on the ground, and one of the medics wraps him up, thinking he's done. And John stands back up, and he keeps going. And he keeps running in the race. And while he's in last place, a solid hour will pass between the first place runner and him. In fact, by the time he gets to the stadium, the camera crew is done. The stadium is empty. People have given up. They think the race is over. And then a cameraman spots him coming around into the stadium, and they run up to the cameras because they realize something amazing is happening. And they film him in the last 800 meters trying to cross that finish line with all the bandages and the bruises and the brokenness of his body. And he crosses the finish line, and they run up to him, and they're like, this is amazing. What was your inspiration? How did you do this? And he looks at them, and he says some of the most profound words ever uttered in the Olympic event. He says, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. That is why I'm here today representing my nation. I'm here to finish. And he embodies the agony. He embodies the struggle of fighting that fight, of pushing through, and of struggling. Because Paul understood something in his Christian fight. Paul understood that the pain of defeat doesn't even come close to the pain of retreat. That the pain of retreat carries with it regret that will linger forever, while defeat just stings for a season. And Paul had this awareness enough to know that the agony is worth it. The struggle is worth it. And look, for Paul, when he's talking about the fight, he's talking about his specific goal, like he was going to live and be faithful to Jesus. When he talks about the faith, he's, he's not just talking about a series of doctrines, he's talking about his faithfulness to that doctrine. But when he's talking and he's unpacking it, he's also not just talking about the faith in general. Paul's talking about all the little tiny fights in the right next step in front of him. Because the fight is both this metaphorically large thing, but sometimes the fight is the next step in front of you. Like for me, my fight, there's a lot of little fights I fight every single day. One of the promises I made to my wife when we got married is I said to her, to her face and in front of the people all in that room, I said, when your hand slips out of my hand into his hand forever, your hand will have been better. Your life will have been better because you held my hand for a season. That my commitment to you is not how I feel. It's not how what I'm thinking. It's about me leveraging all that I am for your good so that when you stand before Jesus, you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's my goal for you because I'm with you. My hand until his hand. That 
was my promise to her. That's my fight every single day. And for my kids to say my biggest hero, my best picture of Jesus, my most compelling picture of what church could look like is going to be who wakes me up in the morning, who sings to me when I'm down. That I recognize that for me, my fight is those next right things. I don't know what your fight is and that next right thing. For some of you, your fight is the addiction that you're struggling with. For some of you, your fight is the financial position that you're in yourself with. For some of you, your fight is in the relationship that you need to fight for, the kids that you need to fight for, the heart that you've got to fight for. I don't know what your fight is. But the question isn't, today, for me, what's your fight? It's, are you going to fight? Do you have that fight? It's picked you. Are you going to pick it? Are you going to fight for that joy? Are you going to fight for that peace? Are you going to fight for that financial freedom? Are you going to sacrifice in the agony of the moment with your children so that you can lead them not just in this present moment, but to lead them into adulthood too? Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're a middle school or a high school and your present fight is to just keep moving forward. And your present fight is to know that there are so many people who are taking so many choices and decisions away from where you want to go in life and that your fight is to stay right on the right course and to keep showing up and keeping your head down and studying and putting down that stupid phone and quit sending stupid pictures. Right? Like, maybe that's your fight. And that's okay. But fight that fight. Agonize in that agony. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it sucks. Yes, it's not pleasant. But it's worth it. It's worth crossing that line. Because the pain of defeat does not come close to the pain of retreat and regret. The pain of crossing that line. Look, Paul understood that in the end, we will not measure our life by what we lose. We will measure our life by what we find. We will not measure our life by what we lose. We will measure our life by what we gain. And some of us, part of us being willing to take that fight is to get rid of some of the stuff that's keeping us from being able to fight in the first place. To let it go. Some of you need to walk away from some relationships that are holding you back. In 10 years from now, are they really going to help you cross that finish line? Are they really going to be the people that are going to push you to that place you want to be? No. And you need to walk away. I'm not saying you don't love them, but I'm saying you quit going all like double barrel racing with them because they're causing you to lose. And you know what you're supposed to be winning at. And some of you teenagers, like, let the scrub go. You just dating that boy because he makes you feel better. But you're going to learn real quick that no boy's going to make you feel better for the rest of your life. You got to own that fight yourself with you. Quit leaning on them to make you feel better. It's not worth it. Like, fight the good fight. And that Paul can say all this, that Paul can write this with passion. I'm telling, I've read these words, and I remember having goosebumps swip over my entire life because I'm reading these words. Like, he's saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all too long his appearing. He's writing these words, and I'm reading these, these words. It's dark. I'm reading it off my phone, 
And I'm reading it with a passion that he would have written it. Not just the letters on my screen. And I'm looking around the room and it is just this dark cave. And I'm like, this man is writing like someone who is in a terminal. Not like a man who's terminal. You see, when he says that day, he's talking about a day. Paul had already been in his courtroom. He had already said, based on the context of what we know he says in a few verses later, that they've given him just a short season. He's got a, he's got a few months, maybe, at the most. And, he's, and it's going to be over. Paul is going to lose his life about four or five miles from the spot he writes this letter. He's going to lose it in a spot where the emperor would hold massive parties. And he's going to lose his life because they're going to behead it. They're going to bring him out in a public spectacle. And they're going to chop his head off. And they're going to celebrate the victory of killing one of the most famous Christians in the Roman world. And it's going to be a party. And yet you stand in that room and you don't read the words like a man who's been given a death sentence. You read the words of a man who seems somehow in the midst of a death sentence to have grabbed hold of life. You read this man and it's like, this guy is not terminal. He's in a terminal moving on up like the Jeffersons. He's got a better place. He's headed somewhere. And, and it can be a little tricky, but the word fight gives you that last little picture. You see, not only does the word fight have a finish line and a victory. Not only does the word fight, the word that we get our word agony, but the root for the word we get our word agony is where we get our word for assembly and audience. To be in a fight, the word he uses implies that there's an audience. In keeping with the athletic metaphor of the race, this is so good. In the ancient Greek world, when they ran races, the finish line was not a place. It was a face. The most powerful Roman or Greek official in the land would sit at the finish line. And when you ran to the end of the race, when you ran that last stadium, which is where we get our word for stadium. Man, you guys are getting all kinds of like trivial pursuit, like hats right here. Like I'm helping you win. If you get on Jeopardy, you know where to send that check. Okay. I'm helping you out today. Like, and when they came into that last stadium and they were doing that last little stretch, what you would do is you would fix your eyes on the finish face, not the finish place. Because that's what you were running for. That's what you were aiming at. And so when he writes that there is in store for me that day a crown, you want to be like, hold, hold, hold up, Paul. You're about to lose your head, Paul. You're about to lose your head. And all you can think about is what's going to be placed on your head, a crown. He's like, oh, because I've fought the fight. I've kept the faith. The finish line for me is a face. It's not just a place. For him, what moved, what was the fire at the sore, at the source of his fight, was Jesus. <clears throat> it was why he ran. And you can say, but Paul, Jesus was the reason. You only had one final season for life. He was the reason you were thrown into prison. And Paul's like, oh, no, 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 no. You missed something. No, he's my finish line. He's not why I'm finished. He's my finish line. See, you look at me in chains and you think this is all you see, but I've been in prison before. I've been shipwrecked before. I've been snake bitten before. 
I've been misunderstood. I've been ridiculed before. I have been beaten. I have been lashed out. I have been smuggled out of cities because of what I teach and preach. I have had people who hate me, who speak against me. I have people who stand in opposition to me, even though they think they're right and they call me wrong. He's like, no, no, no. I have done all of that. I have seen all of that. But here's the thing I want you to know. In verse 16, he says, at my first defense, no one came to my support. Talking about his court date. Everyone deserted me. And then with grace, he says, oh, but may it not be held against them. He's like, I'm not mad. Why? Because the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth, which is probably an actual real thing, like an actual real lion with like real teeth and a real mouth. Like he's probably talking about like a real lion there, not a metaphor. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To, he be, to him be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Paul's like, he sustained me in every season. He is my very reason for this fight. He's like, so bring it on. On that day when you think my day is done, it'll only have just begun. Because he had fight. He had not lost sight of why he was doing what he was doing. He knew why he was doing it and he knew who he was doing it for. And if we're going to fight for it, we have to first get our fight in it. And for some of us today, maybe today is the day that you step into faith or you step to explore faith that you, like me, have an honest conversation and a dialogue. Like some of you have legitimate questions. You have legitimate struggles. You have things that sound really smart and really scientific because they are. And you think they're barriers. You're like, well, evolution, it can't be true. The Big Bang, boom, can't be real. This Christianity thing. All these other religions. Some guy claiming to be God. Like, this is absurd. Yeah. Until it's not. There's a lot of things, like atoms, like a man landing on a moon, like man flying, where it's impossible until it's not. And I would say for you that it may be worth you looking into this and researching it. I'll send you a book for free. I'll buy your coffee, or you never have to talk to me. But you should do the work of looking to see if this is actually working. For some of us, maybe it's a step back into faith. You grew up in it. And then for rightful reasons, you got sick of the people who were doing it. And you were like, I don't want anything to do with it if that's what it is. And maybe today you stop walking away from the things that are those tertiary things. Look, I've had a bad egg before, but I still eat omelets. Okay? And just because I've had a bad cheeseburger doesn't mean I write off all cheeseburger joints. And so for some of us, maybe today we step back into that thing that we once stepped out of. For some of us, it may be that today we decide we're going to step into the fight. We're going to start fighting for that relationship. We're going to start fighting for our family. We're going to start fighting for our health. We're going to start fighting for our finances. We're going to start fighting for the future that you know deep down inside you want. And today you stop stepping out of the fight, and you step into it. You quit waving the white flag, and you start running for the white flag. You start running to that place of victory. 
I, I don't care how defeated, how bad the start of your race has happened. You didn't get put on planet Earth to start a race. You got put on planet Earth to finish it. And at the end of the day, the pain of retreat and regret completely overshadows that pain of defeat. Because when you're defeated, you stand back up and you keep going. But when you retreat, you've surrendered it. And I'm, I'm not a statistician or a mathematician, but I can pretty much confidently say that I know you lose 100% of the battles you don't fight. And that you actually have a chance if you fight for it. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.